The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology, in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans 8.1. We're beginning a new series uh, in Romans 8, so I'd encourage you as you turn and you find it there, maybe leave your bookmark if you have one, but leave your bookmark there because we're going to be here for the remainder of the summer. Now, in your Bible, there are 1,189 chapters, and repeatedly throughout the generations, this one has been called the greatest uh, chapter by pastors and theologians and just Christians, because uh, condensed in it are these truths uh, that we love about the Lord. If you remember last fall in our series, God is Great, as we covered uh, many of those uh, uh, momentous chapters in Genesis through Revelation, covering some of the high points of God's activity in human history and some of those chapters on, on theology, while well, really traces of all of that are condensed down into these 39 verses of Romans 8. It's a, this is one of those chapters to just come back to over and over, to memorize it, or to challenge your chapters, to meditate on day and night, as you see the Psalms encouraging us to do. And before you know it, even as you just are meditating on it, you will begin to have it uh, implanted into your soul. This is one of those chapters that no matter what season you're in, if you're in a season of joy and blessing or a season of difficulty and struggle, this is a chapter with theological instruction, with truths to be convinced of and to bank your life on and daily application for you. For this chapter is deep and wide. It is vast and various. Now, uh, Romans 8, even as we get into it, it reminds me much of like the state of Texas in some ways state of Texas, in terms of its vastness and variety, in terms of the ground that it covers and the geography and topography of uh, theology. You know, in the 14 years that I've lived in this uh, state and called it home, I've traveled uh, uh, quite a bit, particularly in my days in, in camp ministry, but even now to the northern tip of the Panhandle, to the southern tip at Brownsville, to El Paso and Beaumont. I've dipped my feet in the Gulf over there in many places like Corpus Christi and Port A and South Padre. I've been through the deserts of West Texas and out around Midland and Odessa there. I've bought traffic from DFW and Waco and Austin and San Antonio and over in Houston and swatted skeeters all over East Texas and the Piney Woods from Tyler to Huntsville and hiked and biked and paddled many of the hills and valleys and rivers of the hill country and, of course, all along the way of eating barbecue and tacos, you know, and all those stops. Amen is right. Amen. But Texas has great variety in terms of its geography and topography, in terms of the expanse, how vast it is and its experience. And it's really too much to cover in a few hours or, uh, or one trip or really even a lifetime. In much the same way, but even greater, theologically speaking, is Romans 8 as it covers a ton of theological ground, beginning with our justification, there being no uh, condemnation of the Trinitarian work and our redemption and the substitutionary atonement of the Savior and our sanctification, the, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit who indwells us in our life and who adopts us into this salvation through to the suffering that, or the hope of glory that we have in our suffering and creation, longing for the return of Christ. 
the pneumatology and the work of the Spirit, the intercession of the Spirit and the intercession of the Son to the sovereignty of God over all human events and the sovereignty of God in our salvation to our eternal security and the assurance that we have of God's love for us. There is so much that I don't want us to miss the glorious truths in these chapters. And so we're going to make our first stop today in verses 1 through 8. So grab your Bible. I want to read it for us and set the table, and then we'll look at it closer. Romans 8, beginning in verse 1, says this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's a great place for an amen, right? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is God's word for God's people. Here's the main point of the text. If you're trying to get to the bottom, if you want, just like, all right, what to, to make sense and what does this all mean? Here, you can write this down. It's in your notes and on the screen. The Mosaic law could not redeem us who walk in sin. So God redeems us so that we can walk in the Spirit. At the center of this text is this foundational truth that the law could not redeem those who walk in the flesh, in, the, in our sin. So God redeems us so that we can walk in the Spirit. If we were to boil all it down, Paul's main argument is exactly that. And maybe this helps you bring some confusion, because I know we're going to take it apart here in just a minute, but maybe it would be helpful to think of our verses like this, uh, of, of the old American West. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I, I kind of have this picture in my mind of like a Louis L'Amour novel or a Clint Eastwood old school Western uh, novel. You don't understand what I'm thinking? Or you get where I'm there? Somebody like, novels? Like, who reads Louis L'Amour? Those things are still around? You bet. <laughs> After your Bible reading, right, Greg? That's right. But those days of the pioneers who braved the wild, who paved the way for civilization, they encountered violent weather and vicious animals, and they would duel anyone who would, who would offend their honor. But they did it to, they struggled through it to, uh, with the hope that there was something better, making something better. And so I read these verses, and I think of like that. I think of like, you know, uh, the untamed, unruly land like our flesh. Our sinful nature, what he's talking about, that is untamed, unruly there. And the law of sin and death is running uh, 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 our, the course of our life and everything around us just unchecked. Somewhere in the distant east is that Mosaic law where it's in place. People are trying to adhere to it. And yet even there, things are just as unruly, though maybe a little bit more masked. And so God the Father uh, sends his son Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh to come and to live the life 
that we couldn't live. He came and condemned sin, was condemned by sin, died, and then ascended. After he ascended, he sent the Spirit into the wild west of our untamed, unruly hearts to bring it under control. I don't know if that helps you here to see it here, but to see the change, to see the work and the, the, uh, the, the taming of the West or how the West was one in our sinful minds, how, the, how we are set free then in Christ. But it's a change that begins, as you saw in the text here repeated, it's a change that begins in our mind. It's a change that begins with some theological truths that then we apply to uh, make our freedom. You should know this in Romans 8, there are zero commands. Yeah, like if you're looking for just like easy like steps on, in order to obey, to follow Christ and to walk in his spirit, guess how many of those we're going to find in the 39 verses? Big goose egg right there. It is all just these truths and an argument that he is setting before us to be convinced of to have set as resolute in our minds and in our hearts that lead then uh, to how we uh, uh, live in obedience to the Lord. And so if we have this center point then, here's the, here are the truths that come out of it. We have to be convinced of some things. There's a mindset of walking in the Spirit that is convinced that I am free from sin's penalty. If we were to put the first four verses together, there's a convincing that Paul is trying to, uh, to impress upon our minds that we are free from sin's penalty. And to do so, uh, we kind of have to understand the context, not kind of. We really have to understand the context because there's a flow of thought that he is making when he drops this uh, theological truth bomb of verse 1 onto us. There's a therefore in the verse, then we know as good Bible students, right? When we see a therefore, we ask the question, what is therefore? Therefore. And in this case, he's going to take us way back to chapter 3. Now, again, we just parachuted right into, in, into, into Romans. But if we were studying it, you know, kind of verse by verse and chapter by chapter there, we'd, you, you kind of get this sense that Romans is one just long stair step. It's a, it's a series of gar clauses. Gar is the Greek word of four. And he's making this argument. He'll say a truth and he'll say, and for this, and for this, and for this, and for this. And he's all these statements. And then he'll sum it up and like, therefore, in light of all these stairs, like you reach the next step, then here's another truth, and he'll uh, make the case, and he'll go uh, and explain it on. And so we ask, what is there for? And he takes, it's actually all the way back to chapter 3, verse 21. Prior to that, he's made the case for the, the radical depravity of humanity. All of us uh, being born into this flesh that he's speaking of, flesh being really synonymous with our sinful nature in these verses. And so he's saying this, and we, he, it just brings us to a place where we're without hope. <laughs> What can be done to be saved? Who can then be right with God? Chapter 3, then he thrusts us on this great doctrine of our justification, of Christ coming both to be just and the justifier of humanity, of us in our sin. And so what he's, he's making then the case of what this justification is all throughout the scriptures. And chapter 5 just does another uh, kind of landing point there. He gives a therefore and states it in the positive sense. Just, you can listen to this, or you can turn there if you want, but in Romans 5, 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there's a summary of 3 and 4, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he makes the case positively, here's where we stand, we now have peace. We are no longer enemies, praise God for that, right? 
been set free from sin. He goes on to explain it some more than in chapter 6 and our sanctification and how that all plays out. And then we get into chapter 8 now, and he's summarizing all of that, and he states it in a negative sense. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God for that, right? It's a declared truth that he sets before us now with ramifications. Providential on a day where uh, we celebrate Juneteenth and the, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation being applied and the announcement being made. And now it's then how then do we live? This is a declared truth. How do we live as those who are free? Where we are convinced that I am free from sin's penalty. Well, the verses here would uh, implore us to, we must know the difference between condemnation and conviction. See, he's coming here, he's making a, a, a truth claim. We must know the difference then between condemnation and conviction. Because here, here's the reality. Like this, this is super important for us. He says, therefore, there is a now. When is now? Like right now, right? This isn't a future thing that we await like when Christ returns. No, right now before the Almighty, because of what Christ has done, you are not condemned but loved. Right now before the Lord, you are not forsaken or forgotten but remembered in your situation. Right now before the Lord, you are not cast away but adopted into his family. And just to be real practical, in the moment right now, in your battle against sin, in your life right now, following Christ, there is no better truth to remember than this right now. If you're weary, if you're frustrated, if you're in the battlefield, you don't necessarily know where to go, and it seems like everything around you is, is waging war, and your ears are ringing, and it's in the, the moment, everything in your sight is a blur, the noises are static-like, and you need to hear the gentle voice of the Lord, by the Spirit, the Ryan of the tribe of Judah, saying, you're mine. You're pardoned. I paid for that. You are my son. You are my daughter. Enjoy my righteousness. You can say no to that. You can say yes to following me. You have everything you need in me. My way is better you're free. That's the voice of the Lord. That is the truth of these verses and the declaration. Our standing has justified right now. There is now no condemnation. It's a very interesting word. It's a very interesting word. It's, it's used really only here and in this sense, but it's used of, a, of like prison servitude. Of, of the penal servitude that comes when you're guilty and you're condemned. And, and, and think of like the old sense of like you're in prison, but then the old chain gangs, right? Where you're doing this hard labor and you're working because you're in prison to it without any benefit, without any return back on you. He's saying now because you have been set free from sin's penalty, you are no longer under that penal servitude, the imprisonment or the enslavement of your sin. You can now live as free. Praise God for that, right? Isn't this the gospel, the truth that we love that is all throughout these verses of what Christ did and how the Spirit put it into effect, what Jesus did? He says this, and then he's like, and now because you're in Christ Jesus, the laws or the rules or the principles, the power of the Spirit of life has set you free from the rules or the power or the effect of sin and death. 
And so note this just for a second, careful Bible students, and, and, and especially so in this uh, chapter here and in our passage here, the, the Bible uses uh, law in a variety of senses. Okay? In this case, it's referring to uh, similar the way that we would use like the law of gravity, right? Law of gravity has certain rules or principles. It has power. Like if you jump off of a platform, gravity is going to take place, right? If I were to jump off here, I wouldn't just levitate, right? Although that'd be kind of cool. I would fall. The same is true here. As we are under the power of sin and death, it leads to a place, which we'll get to in a bit. And if we're under the power of the spirit of life, it has a different power, a different effect, the principles at play here. And we are, no, there's no condemnation because in Christ we've been set free now to live this way. In verse 3, we'll get a different sense of the law, the Mosaic law. But the reality is Christ won this for us and now the Spirit is putting into effect what Christ has done. But here's the thing. We have an enemy who hates these verses, don't we? We have an enemy who hates these verses, who, who works overtime to cause us to doubt our standing with the Lord. Who whispers lies, who twists the truth, who skews reality, who makes things seem more desirous than they really are. Who causes us to question and doubt the goodness of God and the rightness of his ways. Who works overtime to distract us from these truths attracting us with lesser things and tempting us to sin because Satan hates this truth. He works overtime every day to get us to forget it, to wanting us to believe that we'll have to pay eternally for our consequences. Wanting us to forget that nobody will love you if you open up about this. Church, in the whole world that has ever struggled with that. Causing us to doubt it condemning us that we would be enslaved again by it. He hates it. He condemns us in it. Prison of our mind getting us to believe these things. But here's the reality. The enemy condemns, but the spirit convicts. And what's the difference? Condemnation ends in death. Ends in the things that bring about death. It causes us to hide. It it, it enslaves us to uh, the thoughts and the actions of the sin. But conviction is of the spirit. Conviction leads to life. Conviction leads to freedom. Conviction leads us out into the light and sets us free because Christ won it for us. See, Christ stood and was condemned for us so that we wouldn't have to be. He was condemned in our sin, taking it on in uh, his flesh. And see, here's the thing. This, this is really what verses 3 and 4 are getting at in here. If we're to be convinced that we are free from sin's penalty, we have to know the difference between condemnation and conviction, but also knowing the difference between what God did, what the Trinity did, and what we do. And what we do in this freedom See, you get the Trinity in verses 3 and 4. Look what, what, look what it says. God the Father, he, he did it. He planned, he orchestrated it all. He sent his Son. He did what the law couldn't do. He sent the Son and the Son came. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And note how, how particular and how careful that phrase is there. Careful to preserve the, uh, the, that God is, or Christ is fully God and fully man. It doesn't say in the likeness of flesh, for that would mean that Christ was some lesser person. He just kind of came kind of like us. And it doesn't say that he came in sinful flesh, for that would insinuate that he had a sinful nature. But no, in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
He was not born uh, in Adam via Joseph, his human father, but through the Holy Spirit by Eve, born into the likeness of sinful flesh. And what did he come to do? To save, to fulfill. He would condemn sin in the flesh. In other words, put it to death over here, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us. What, is, what was the righteous requirement of the law, the Mosaic law here? What, were the, what was the requirements of the law? Perfect holiness. We couldn't do that, could we? Even with the help of the law, we could not earn God's favor. We could not set ourselves free from the penalty of law. We could not get out from the condemnation and be free from our sin on our own. And so God the Father, He did it. He sent it. The Son came and did it perfectly. And the Spirit then enables or empowers us to walk in the holiness that Christ uh, accomplished for us, that those who walk according to the Spirit. And so there, there's God's work. But what did the verses reveal? What do we do to get set free from the penalty? You can answer in English or Spanish. Nada or nothing. Right? God did what our flesh, like I said earlier, the sinful nature within us, not our adherence to the law could do. See, the thinking goes, it was true of them and it's true in us. Maybe it takes shape a little bit different, but the thinking goes like, well, if I follow all the laws, if I do all the things, if I do more good than bad, then I will have eternal life. Then, of course, God will accept me, right? Chapter 7 has just shown that that's impossible, all right? We're familiar with chapter 7 and Paul's struggle. Uh, he who, who knew the law, who worked hard, and he's like, and I, all the things that I know I'm supposed to do, I don't do, and all the things I know I'm not supposed to do, I do them. He's like, ah! You ever lived there? You ever been there? Like this morning, right? This morning. Impossible. We know the law is holy, righteous, and good. He says that in chapter 7, verse 12, right? The law is holy, righteous, good. It's not bad, but what was then the purpose of the law? He's like, well, you know, we're reading through this. Like, well, what, what was it for then? What was the law for? Well, he, he tells us there in, in chapter 7, three reasons why he brought the law. It, it was holy, righteous, and good. But initially in verse 5, he says it's to, to provoke or to arouse sin from within us. See, we like to say, well, sin is outside us. We're like nice and perfect and innocent. And then we get corrupted by all these outside things here. And he's like, no, no, what the law does is it actually provokes and arouses. Like, no, it's actually within us. But then the law also, in verse 7, it points out what is right and wrong. This is in chapter 7 here. I'm just kind of giving you a flyover here. And then what comes out, he says, well, yeah, this is wrong and this is right. It's a teacher. It points out and instructs, this is wrong. And then in verse 8, it goes on because the, the law then also agitates sin even more in us, causing us, why does it do this? It causes us then to long for grace. To show us that we are needy and dependent and we need a savior. We need the ongoing of us live as free men and women. Well, it's holy, righteous, and good. There's not wrong with it. Nothing wrong with it, but we can't make it do something that it was never meant to do in us. Salvation has always been by grace, through faith, the goodness and sovereignty of God. The rules and regulations and our adherence to them will never achieve what we want or need. It's always and only the work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in us. 
that these verses are bringing to the head uh, for us is this like clash of forces between the Trinity and the law of sin and death at work in our sinful flesh and the Mosaic law here. And it is God who comes out as the victor so that we can walk free from sin's penalty. We can walk without the condemnation that leads to death and the heaviness and the guilt in this life, but rather walk in the freedom of the Holy Spirit free from sin's power over us. For this is really where he takes us then next to this second conviction, that this mindset that must be true in us, that we must be convinced of and and convicted by and resolute in that we're convinced that I am also free from sin's power. If we're kind of old, There we are. All right. Can't do anything without some battery power, right? Since it's Father's Day, I can tell a good joke. I just got rid of the batteries. These are some gooderies. (laughs) Father's Day, so dad jokes are worth double today, y'all. That's right. If they're pastor jokes and dad jokes are quadruple, so... All right, back to the word of God here. We have to be convinced not only that we are free from sin's penalty, but also sin's power. For that freedom begins in our thinking, right? The application is born out in our thinking then, that is born out then in how we walk. How we walk according to the things of the spirit or the things of the flesh. Our walk being that which is indicative of our life. Those characteristics uh, that, that mark our life as a pattern. And, 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 he, and he's, 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 he's bringing out a comparison here in verses 5 through 8. Do you see that? I mean, really all throughout it. And this isn't just uh, uh, for Romans. He does it in Galatians 5 too, where he compares the deeds of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit, right? Same thing is, is true here as he is comparing both of, uh, of these here and where we set our minds on and what is true in the fruit of our life. And so it's, there's a starting place of where we set our mind. Now you remember that from uh, Colossians 3 from several months ago, right? Where he says, uh, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is and set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on Earth And so to set your mind is to be tethered to, 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 to be attached to, to be concentrated to where your thoughts are never far from these things. And they're saying, don't be thinking about the things that are on earth, but rather set your minds on the things that are above. And the same is really true. These are overlapping ideas of setting our minds on the things or the fruits of the spirit versus flesh where we, we are convinced of, we're considered here, where just like he said in Romans 6, 11, to consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's a settled, it's thought, it's been thought through and it's decided upon, we're resolute and now we are living accordingly. Same is true here. 
But note the comparison where it begins, flesh and spirit, and where it ends. Right? Verse 6, the mindset on the flesh is death, eternal death, separation from God. But the mind on the spirit, this, but to set the mind on the spirit is life, eternal life. And the way there, what we get in between and always and forever is peace, shalom, a, a, a state of assurance and love and satisfaction that comes from knowing God and being loved by Him and being in His presence. But the digression where a mindset on the flesh that ends in death, look at the hostile language that is described. Mindset on the flesh, hostile to God. It's insubordinate, does not submit to God's laws. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh, opposed to those who are in Christ, cannot please God. They don't because they can't, and they can't, so they don't. It's indicative of your standing, not like this if-then righteousness, like if you do these things, then you are saved. If you're walking, then you... No, no, no. It's indicative where you stand. Are you justified or are you condemned? But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. So this should cause us to pause and just ask the question, like, where is my mind? Upon what have I set my mind on? What are the things that I dwell on? Especially when it comes to the things of God. You know, not necessarily talking about just like when you're daydreaming or whatever, right? Like you're just sitting there staring off into space. Sometimes I'll do that. My wife say, like, what are you thinking about? And I'm like, nada. Nothing. No, no, no. But particularly when we're confronted with the things of God. Like, the, the, he gives us a, a snapshot here. If your mind is set on the flesh, like it's fixed there, it's tethered there. If your standing is condemnation, then your thoughts are leading to death. Are you, and it should ask, like, are, are we filling our minds with the things that are destructive or that are dishonoring to the image of God. Those things that devalue what God has created and said is good. Am I setting my mind on the things that are hostile to God? You know, like as I'm, as I'm uh, brought to the Bible, as I'm confronted with it, am I just outright rejecting it? Or am I looking for all the ways that it doesn't apply to me, the loopholes or the caveats that I don't have to follow this or that was just for them or... I can blame somebody else and set on the things that are in rebellion to God's law, indicative of an enemy. Or is your mind set on the things that are indicative of a friend, of a friendly, of someone who is spirit-filled, those things that lead to life, those things that lead to peace, those things that are captured in like Philippians 4.8, those things that would fall under the category of, uh, of, of things that are excellent or praiseworthy, those things that are, 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 are noble and good and right. Are, are we saturating our minds with the scriptures, the things that lead to life, the, the, life, the, the things that are in the way of wisdom, or in the way of folly. See, one way ends in death and the other ends in life. It's our identity, our redemption, Christ, that, that are then revealed by how we walk, by how we then live. Whether or not we believe and we found ourselves secure in the truths that are described here in our justification in Christ is told then by how we live our life. It's our life, our life and our actions are telling, they're, re, they're revealing, they show our colors, they rat us out. 
so to speak. And so let me just ask this question, like, does your life mimic your master? Yes, it does. Whether you, whether the question is, which master? Is it the old one? Is it the master of sin? Or is it the master of Christ? Are you walking in the Spirit? And just some questions to help us assess and to think through our, our thinking, like, do we cling to our identity in Christ in the struggle? As we're going through life, that we're reminding ourselves, we're convinced of these things. No, I can say no to that. Uh, is your freedom in Christ your biggest boast? Or do we boast about how close we've gotten to sin? And are we living as someone free from the penalty and the power of sin and longing for the day when we're free from the presence of sin? See, we ought to read these words in chapter 8. We ought to uh, uh, embrace these truths here. And it should humble us to, to know in that our life, our thinking here, they tell a, a greater story those who are pardoned and walking with Christ. But the freedom here, remember, it starts in the mind. It starts by where we're convinced. It starts with how, how, how we lead here. And so this is where, like, where we have to be so careful because we're like any counsel that we give or receive that does not set our minds onto the things of the Spirit is going to lead us in the wrong direction. It's going to lead us to the wrong end. Any, any counsel that we're giving just as we're talking with one another or that we are or, or in, the, in a formal sense or what we're receiving from somewhere, any counsel that does not set our minds on the things of the Spirit, counsel that we're giving or receiving, it is going to lead us in the wrong direction. Same is true of any media that we consume, that we consume and, and that we're filling our minds with here. If it does not help us to set our minds on the things of the Spirit, it's going to lead us to... The wrong end. Now, don't take this too far. This doesn't mean like you can't watch any TV, you can't be on any social media, you can't talk to, even to unbelievers. No, no. Just that we can't set our minds there. We have to be very careful in the living out of this. But here's the glorious truth this morning. Even in the songs that we've sung and the glorious truths of this, this morning that we've been set free. So praise God that we can. Verses 7 and 8 are framed in the negative sense. That, that grieve us as we remember our former way of life when we were in the flesh, that grieve us as we see a world lost and living according to the flesh, those that are hostile and insubordinate, those that cannot and will not and do not praise or please God. The inverse is all, also true of we who walk in the Spirit. Praise God that even today, because we have been set free from sin's power, now we can walk in the Spirit. Now we can have peace in this life with God. We are His friends and His followers. We are not His hostile enemy. We are no longer at war with God, but at war against our sin, where we can now submit to His laws and obey His commands with joy and delight because they are not burdensome, because we know they are not meant for our salvation, but for our sanctification and for our good. We can please Him and know that today God is proud to walk beside us to call you his son or his daughter. You're convinced of that today. You're convinced of the freedom that Christ has won for you and the Spirit has applied to you because God pursued you.
what joy-filled, humbling, joy-producing uh, thoughts those are. What life-transforming, what liberating uh, uh, a mindset that is as we seek to walk in the Spirit, that because Christ lived and died and was condemned but rose again, we too can be redeemed. It's a truth we celebrate all the time. It's the core of the gospel. It's a truth we particularly remember when we take communion. As our minds go back to what Christ paid, what Christ did, as he was condemned in the flesh, winning us this freedom. It's what we celebrate. It's God's greatest work and expression of love where Christ stood condemned in our place, where his righteousness was applied to us, where the spirit then was given to us that we might live in this freedom. That's something to praise God for, is it not? So let's pray and praise God, and then we're going to take communion together. Bow your heads with me, and let's do that. God in heaven, here we are. Here we are, undeserved benefactors of your grace set free because of Christ, living now in newness of life. God, thank you for this. What else could we say? Uh, Lord, I feel like we're on repeat, but what else could we say? But thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You're so good. You're so kind to us. And yet, even as we thank you for it, Lord, we realize we are undeserving of it. We realize we need your help. And we need your spirit to do the work beginning in our mind, God, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so help us even today to be more convinced, more resolute, to consider ourselves dead to sin, not under condemnation, but now alive in Christ Jesus. Thank you, God. And so, Lord, continue your work. Refine us, shape us, sanctify us as we seek to live as your children. Do that work, do that convincing work, even as we uh, come to your table. Even as we remember now, nourish our soul, remind us, God, of what you have done to save us. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.